Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Thanks for listening as ever. A special hello to today's glamorous listener, Robert, listening to the podcast on the coast road near Aberdeen on a business trip. Remember them? My first in over a year, he says. He lives in London, uh, but was uh, heading up uh, to Aberdeen on a business trip and has sent some nice photos as well uh, of uh, the sea, which looks amazingly cold. Anyway, let me know where you're listening to the podcast. Email me, matt.shawley at timestopradio, and we'll say hello to you on a future episode. Coming up on today's episode, we turn our attention today to the politics of housing, uh, the government making a big push in the Queen's speech, and that's been debated in the House of Commons today. So, if we're going to talk housing, who else to speak to other than Grand Design's very own Kevin McLeod, who says we should all be building our own uh, homes, uh, glass and wicker turrets optional. Uh, that's coming up in our big thing on the podcast in a moment. But first, as ever, it's our columnist panel. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Well, it gets better and better, doesn't it? Now, it's a debate which has been played out for the last 12 months about governments having to balance risk and uh, benefit uh, uh, of, of those risks. Uh, but particularly right now, the Indian variant spreading in areas where vaccination rates are low. And at what point the government has to say, we've done all we can to help you, we've offered you the vaccine. Is there a point, uh, Danny, where the government has to say, look, we're not going to keep the whole country locked up? I think the real difficulty is what to do if the policy would increase the number of deaths and cases but not overwhelm the NHS, which was the original objective of the policy. In those circumstances, do you continue to open? Uh, that's actually always been, I think, the difficult moral question that the government was going to face at some point. And we may, may now be shortly in a position where uh, they are about to face it. And, and I, I don't think there's any wrong, uh, completely correct answer. Uh, one does have to hope, though, that, that one of you know, Boris Johnson's um, weaknesses, which is the kind of make a decision that uh, gets him through the moment that he hopes is, uh, which is based on a sort of optimism that isn't justified by circumstances, that that doesn't guide us at the crucial m moment. But it's hard, isn't it, not to not to want that optimism to be successful, uh, not to want us to be in a position where we can open up further, even if the data begins to look like it may be difficult. What do you think, David, about the, where the balance lies? And it's some, you know, there's, there's a point at which we all go a bit 
like the unlocked people who've been <laughs> banging on for 12 months. There is a sort of point where you think most people who are at risk have had the vaccine. Or yeah. Everyone has been offered the vaccine. There comes a point where if they haven't had it, that's not the government's fault. No, well, that uh, one of the aspects of this, which is which makes it so tricky, is that you then have to factor in how we respond to messages. And by we, obviously, we mean across the broad range of the population, not just how relatively small groups uh, respond to it. Um, it is very, very difficult once the message is of reopening, not for everybody, for a significant proportion of the population to say, that means it's everything. I can now, and I mean, uh, I don't know about Danny, but what I see around me is I see a range of behaviours, but there is definitely a fairly significant number of people who start to behave as if the next reopening has already happened. They've anticipated it. Uh, and so I completely understand understand why. So in addition to the, go so, so the government's messaging is really tricky. So what it's done is reopen, but be careful. And I think we had a very good example of it in a non-governmental sense when Jeremy Farrar yesterday said, um, or was it the day before yesterday, um, from the Welcome uh, 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 Trust said, um, uh, let's carry on with the reopening, but I personally wouldn't meet people uh, behind <laughs> closed doors. And I think that's a really, really good example. And actually, it's not stupid. It's pretty sensible, this, which is to say, yeah, we want to kind of open as much as we can, but don't go nuts. Now, in the context of the Indian variant, which has introduced a kind of... Uh, a, 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 a variants have been, ever since we got the Kent variant, have been the thing which really looked like disrupting plans. As far as we can tell at the moment, by our best judgment, it looks as though it shouldn't derail everything that we're doing. Um, I'm more worried about how we're now beginning to discuss the people who are not have not yet been vaccinated in places like Bolton. Because I'm worried about what what I'm really worried about is if you try and make them sound like really bad people, that's not going to get them to get vaccinated. Um, that's not going to help the drive for uh, additional vaccination. I think we've got to be really careful about that. And I think some of our colleagues on other newspapers, etc., are really not careful about that kind of thing at all. Um, so I am, I'm actually, I, I'm pretty sympathetic to the government's dilemma uh, in this particular regard. They got it terribly wrong before Christmas, appallingly wrong. They've got it pretty much right, I think, since January uh, and onwards, the five-week thing. And I think what they should do is probably, on the balance of what we know, is continue with what the plans are until there's a really good reason not to. And I don't think we've reached that reason yet. Uh, Danny, in terms of communication, it's quite a different... You know, Boris Johnson is someone who likes to say everything is good or, you know, and leave it until the last possible moment and then he has to admit that everything is bad. And uh, explaining quite a complicated calculation that he's had to make about... Uh, risk and um, uh, personal responsibility and uh, what's for the greater you know, the good of uh, the most people versus a small number of people that's quite a nuanced complicated public argument that he, he might have to make isn't it yeah I think actually to be fair to him I think he's not doing badly with it um, and um, one has to accept about him he's actually been He's actually a brilliant communicator. Yeah. I mean, he, he this this may be not to everyone's taste because to some people he doesn't, you know, he doesn't appeal at all. But you have to look at both his electoral record and his record as a as a as a public figure, right? And that's how he came to attention because he's very good at communicating things, even if they're not how I would communicate them or you would. Um, so uh, I, I do think he I do think he isn't 
is doing reasonably well in communicating the difficulties of this, and so is Matt Hancock. It just is hard because you're making choices not knowing. Um, I think the five-week gaps, to, which looked very long, didn't they, when they were first announced, you thought, can it really take that long between each of these steps? But that now looks like a very clever policy because uh, it's just about long enough uh, for us to be able to make this next judgment. But I do think we have to be rigorous when we make this next judgment and not be guided just by what we hope is true. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I suppose that, that we are dealing with it all, what it feels like an almost entirely different person in 2021 than we, uh, as Prime Minister, that we saw in, in 2020. And uh, some... yeah. and you'll see you'll see at least three more by the end of the year. <laughs> well, but that's Boris Johnson. Let's turn our attention to the leader of the opposition. And uh, first of all, this idea of him doing a um, fly on the wall documentary, which the Labour Party is saying it's. Nothing's been confirmed yet, although he is doing Piers Morgan's life stories, which is potentially even more uh, fraught with difficulty. Um, uh, good idea, this, David. Are you are you getting your popcorn ready to watch an, an hour of Keir Starmer in some meetings? F- firstly, I don't think anything that's got anything to do with Piers Morgan is a good idea. <laughs> I, I have yet to hear of anything that's ever happened with regard to Piers Morgan has been a good idea for anybody except for Piers Morgan. Well, uh, quite. Which is... Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, uh, I, I, do you remember how this all began way back in the day, early days of reality TV when the Royal Opera House invited the cameras inside? It was the first example and so on. And they thought this was going to be great because what it would do is it, it would popularise opera for people who didn't know anything about it. And what actually happened was a total fiasco of exposing the rows and arguments inside the Opera House and so on. Immensely entertaining, you know, from the kind of divas to the directors to the rather kind of hapless Jeremy Isaacs I think it was, who was then kind of running the Royal Opera House and so on. Um, then on the other hand, you get something like the hotel. You remember that one was uh, set in the hotel in Liverpool? Um, yes. The famous, the famous one. And they did really well out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and warts and all, and people loved it. And, you know, they had all these people sleeping under tables during the Grand National, etc. when I think it was during the foot and mouth uh, uh, thing, wasn't it? Or uh, 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 um, The answer is, it can Everybody has told Keir Starmer that no one knows who he is or what he stands for and so on. Well, there's one easy way around that, which is to do a really big fly on the wall, but it only really will be get to be famous if it messes it all up for you. <laughs> um, and so on the whole, I think if you if you think your situation is so desperate that even being messed up is better than no nobody noticing you, um, then that's a kind of problem. My own inclination, I suppose, would be not to do it. Yeah, the, the um, it's it's a sort of the Jay McDonald approach to um, to publicity, isn't it? Or that or that guy was it Jeremy Spate from Airports? That whole sort of nineteen nineties contingent of people who became famous for just doing their jobs and people trailing around after the film. Now, Danny, you have some personal experience with this, don't you? Because in fact, William Hague was on <laughs> Breakfast this morning, talking about how he he'd done a uh, uh, fly on the wall documentary, and you that was at a time when you were working for William Hague. So was it was it just a success for you? Right. Well. Hilariously, even he seems to have forgotten that, with his brilliant memory, that he's done two. I was in two of them. <laughs> um, I, we did one for John Ford, and Michael Cockrell did one as well. Um, and um, so, you know, if, if even we can't remember them, um, then it, it, it was just <laughs> it didn't have the effect that one might have hoped. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be the. Uh, you know, you were looking for titles. I don't think it's going to be the end of the Keir show, right? I don't think. It, I don't think it's going to bring it all crashing down to the ground. But the the chances of it producing. A sort of bad story. I mean, we'd all love to think, wouldn't we, that if only somebody 
could come and see me um, actually, you know, behind the scenes in the messy study appearing uh, on, on your show and then turning to write my column and everything. They'd fall in love with me instantly. Uh, uh, but that's because <laughs> well, we all assume we're instinctively uh, lovable and charismatic, but it isn't actually necessarily the case. Um, so I, I don't have... I don't think it's likely to be a calamity. It's quite a nuisance. So what happened with William Egg's one is that they filmed him preparing for... The first one of them filmed him preparing for Prime Minister's questions. And after that, for months, Blair knew exactly what we were going to do. And we had to change the whole technique in order to, <laughs> in order to cope with the knowledge that Blair then had. Because we'd filmed the whole thing, you know, what exactly we did and how we went through it and everything, giving away all our secrets. So it... it I'm not sure that I would think it's it's quite a burden the whole time. You have to be so careful what you say. Somebody ended up saying something hugely embarrassing in the first day of filming with Michael Cockrell and we had to ask him to take it out in exchange for the rest of the access and all that. It's like it becomes an, a bit of a nightmare. You're watching everything, just making sure you don't say anything half-assed and, and, and then you... And at the end of it, it goes out, uh, you know, and, and it's watched by some political obsessives who, at that time, we didn't have Twitter, but who on Twitter will say, what an idiot you've made of yourself. And then it's, then it's the next day and you've gone on. But I'm not sure it really is worth all the effort. <laughs> and also, I suppose the point is that the sort of people who watch a Michael Cockle documentary or, you know, in the case of Jeremy Corbyn, the one that he did that was on, uh, on, on the uh, Vice website, the only people who are going to watch those are political obsessives. And they've probably already made up their mind about it. Yeah, we it. had several episodes. <laughs> I mean, we had several episodes of the first one. Right? So, I mean, who's going to go, um, you know, back next week, Danny Finkelstein is preparing Prime Minister's question. It's not going to be... People are going to go, I must wait, that's a must, uh, must-see... Uh, you know, binge watching or bo you know, watch with a box set. So I think the it's amount of popcorn the new that will get consumed will be very limited. It's not the new Bridgerton. Uh, um, Keir Starmer discussing with Annalise <laughs> Dodds what she's going to do for the next round of local elections. Well, it depends what trousers he's wearing. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they dress up like that, I would. That's what they all dress in Regency costume. I'm tuning in. That's that's the answer. That is the answer. But I mean, in a way, that the broader point, which is what we were also going to talk about is whether or not the Labour Party will ever find another Tony Blair. Is The, the problem with the Labour Party but, isn't that people don't know what Keir Starmer has for lunch. You know, Boris Johnson, as we very never discusses his private life or, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. Um, but they, they like, the voters seem to like him and they like what he offers them. And isn't the problem that actually that uh, Keir Starmer needs to yeah. find some things that voters want to vote for? So that... I do think the problem with doing it is based on the assumption that um, if you knew everything that they were doing, your view would be different to the view that you have now. And I think that's fundamentally unlikely. Um, I think, you know, joking aside and with people not concentrating on the detail, it assumes that there is a that there that their theory is there is a plan and people just don't really quite understand what it is that the plan involves. And, I, and I, I'm not sure I think that's true. I think it would be better to devote the time they're going to devote to this, to, to deciding which of their demographic groups they're going to appeal to and how they're going to uh, fundamentally do that than it would be to be filmed while not deciding that. But Danny, aren't these rather different uh, different times in this in this respect? It is nearly impossible to get a hearing at the moment outside of the government's main agenda for very very good reasons. So you can see the logic of them saying we need somehow or other to draw attention 
to ourselves to ex to see that we exist and maybe they will see Keir standing by while his child plays football or his enthusiasms as some point of connection which otherwise they they don't get I completely agree with you in the end what they'll do is they'll spend an enormous amount of time worrying about this as it goes on and not doing the other things they could do and it won't give them the benefits that they want but I do kind of I really do understand the the dilemma they can create the most fantabulous policies. They could even express them in the most extraordinary fashion. And at the moment, almost nobody would notice unless, and this is where we came to the point about Tony Blair, unless, and, and even Tony Blair came over at what was a relatively fortuitous time after Black Wednesday had brought in John Smith, then John Smith died, Labour was high. Um, that didn't mean it was automatically going to win. It had to do all kinds of things, but it was already in a position where people were going to listen to it, which nobody's going, which people aren't with Labour yes. at the moment. And then you need the kind of almost preternatural political talents of somebody like Tony Blair, who I think probably is the most talented politician of my generation. I don't think anybody anticipates, saw how electorates yes. were moving, saw what the gaps were, saw what needed to kind of go into those gaps, how to take down your negatives, how to boost your positives and so on. In the way that he did and with the kind of relentlessness he did he did and you don't get many of those um so i ju just um you know I, so i wouldn't i don't think this is i understand the motivation behind having doing it i probably won't do that much harm it's a bit of a distraction and it won't help that much but then you know it may well be as david said that that what the you know my view my view of labor is that labor's chances of um of unseating the Conservatives in the next election are not negligible, even under Keir Starmer. And the reason for that is time for a change, right? It yeah. doesn't require that bigger swing um, from the Conservatives before you're looking at a situation where they no longer have a majority and then they can't get a majority because there's no one else who will cooperate with the Tory party. That's partly to do with the strategy and partly to do with the other parties. So it's not impossible. Um, and I just, I don't think this is going to contribute that much uh, to, to producing that strategy, but it probably won't harm it that much either. Danny Finkelstein and David Wanovich there, of course. You can read them in The Times every week. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just go to thetimes.co.uk and uh, sign up. And as a bonus right now, you get your first month of free. Coming up, the politics of housing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Red Box podcast and today we're going to take a look at housing after the Queen announced this in the Queen's speech. My government will help more people to own their own home while enhancing the rights of those who rent. Laws to modernise the planning system so that more homes can be built will be brought forward along with measures to end the practice of ground rents for new leasehold properties. My ministers will establish in law a new building safety regulator to ensure that the tragedies of the past are never repeated. Uh, That was uh, the Queen at the Queen's speech last week, setting out the government's ambitions for housing, and they're going to be debated in more detail in the Commons today. As the Queen uh, mentioned there, uh, the issue of safety in housing. Well, Labour is stepping up calls today for ministers to act now to save lives and livelihoods by setting a firm deadline by which uh, developers will have to remove uh, unsafe and combustible combustible cladding. Of course, this comes four years after the Grenfell Tower fire, which killed 72 people. Here is Labour's Shadow Housing Secretary, Lucy Powell, speaking to Times Radio Breakfast today. There's a failure here of regulation, a failure of risk assessment, uh, a failure of people to, to do the right thing, who are, who are trying to, to, to do the right thing in some cases. And it, it needs government to step in and oversee that. Uh, That was Labour's Lucy Powell this morning. Meanwhile, the government says it wants to turn generation rent into generation buy by building 300,000 new homes every year. Something that almost every government I think I've ever covered, uh, and even before that, has promised huge numbers of houses, but they never quite manage it. But it isn't just a nice thing to do. It could be in the Tories' interest politically too. Research has shown that there's a direct link between home ownership and particularly those red wall seats which have flipped to voting Conservative. This was Boris Johnson giving his party conference speech last year. And the disgraceful truth is that levels of owner occupation for the under-40s have plummeted in this country and millions of people are forced to pay through the nose to rent a home they they can't truly love or make their own because they can't add a knob or a knocker uh, to the front door and in some cases they can't even hang a picture. We will help turn generation rent into generation buy. We will fix the long-term problems of this country not by endlessly expanding the state but by giving power back to people, the fundamental life-affirming power of home ownership, the power to decide what colour to paint your own front door. Uh, that was Boris Johnson there making the case for people to be able to redecorate their own homes and get their hands on some knockers. So what does home ownership mean for politics and do our relationships with our houses have a greater significance than just where we lay our heads? In a moment, we're going to talk to former Labour Housing Minister Dame Margaret Beckett about the challenges of It's much easier to set targets than it is to actually lay the bricks. And we'll also hear from Lindsay Judge from the Resolution Foundation, who can explain why why housing is a headache for the government and what it might mean for voting patterns. But first, I caught up with some property royalty. Grand Designs presenter Kevin McLeod to talk about whether we're a nation of house builders, why renting is more popular on the continent, 
and what the government could be doing to provide more houses. Uh, if there is some noise in the background, it's because we were doing the interview during quite a, like a pretty massive thunderstorm, uh, just so you're aware. As a nation, we seem obsessed with the idea of home ownership. Everyone, it seems, wants a big, shiny house on the hill. And frankly, it's all the fault of Kevin's grand designs. The one thing that Grand Designs does is, of course, it encourages the idea of self-build and placemaking and the idea of making a home. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think the idea of home ownership, per se, is one which is a, a, a fraught one. And, do you know, we have filmed over the course of the years only a handful of projects which are community, collective, self-build projects where people have come uh, from the social housing list, work with a social housing provider to build their own homes as social housing tenants, and my goodness me, I wish we'd had more of those because they're the most redemptive and the most inspiring of all the projects we've, we've ever filmed. Um, and indeed, th that kind of model's very common. It's very common. It's becoming more common in, in places like Germany, uh, Berlin, uh, Holland, Denmark. Uh, we're a bit slow off the mark. But nevertheless, I think there is a, a healthy future there in, in, uh, in if you like, non-ownership, collective self-build, which I think is a very kind of empowering and very uh, creative way forward. And what's stopping us doing that in this country? Is it a sort of uh, procedural, technocratic planning issue or is it a psychological problem that we think that you've only really made it when you've bought yourself a slice of bricks and mortar? I think actually it's, a, it's quite a complex problem it's, it's, and it's cultural. It's to do with the fact that we don't have a history of self-building in this country or of custom build where you employ a builder to build your own house for you. Most of the people we film are custom builders. In Austria, 86% of all new homes are built, either custom built or self-built. The majority by small companies. There are thousands of small construction companies in Austria. In the UK, we have six large house builders who uh, land bank uh, and turn a profit from the increased value through development of land values. And um, it's, it's a kind of pretty weird market that we have. It's very small. It's it's controlled by a very small number of players. Um, it plays well with the traditional planning system we have, which places great value on land. We happen to be in Europe's most populous country in England, and we happen to have a pretty small land mass as a result for the, for the population we have. So, and we also have a, a history of a strong greenbelt planning legislation too. So all of this puts a high value on land as opposed to countries like Germany where land is released strategically every year for house building uh, and so when the government says it wants to build more uh, every government says it wants to build more homes the annual appointment of the latest housing minister means that they always say they want to build more homes uh, and yet it doesn't seem to happen or at least you know house prices still continue to rise so those people who do want to buy their home uh, might struggle do we need to just do we need to change the planning system so and the, and the, to stop the these these developers land banking or do we need to just get off this hang-up about buying altogether I think, actually, that last idea is a really good one. Um, look, I, I'm old enough to remember uh, Thatcher's right to, um, uh, right to own, um, right to buy, I beg your pardon, right to buy uh, act in, in, in the late 1970s, early 80s, where uh, the Conservative government was, was persuading um, uh, council house tenants to buy uh, their council house from the local council. And many, of course, did so and, and developed those houses up and, and built on them a bit and added to them and then sold them. Um, removing them, of course, from the social housing stock. Um, but I also remember in 2004, Kate Barker's uh, report to Gordon Brown saying that we should be building 350,000 homes a year every year in the UK, a target we have never hit. I mean, we build on 
between 180 and 200,000, if we're lucky, a year. So there is a constant, there has been a constant shortage. And in, according to the old rules of supply and demand, if you're going to drip feed a market with not enough product, the price of that product will go up. So, um, you know, we've seen, for example, from the 1960s, when the average house cost something like three, three and a half times the average wage. Now, the average house costs between 10 and 20 times the average wage. So the relationship between income and cost of housing has increased dramatically since the 1960s. And as a result, yes, although we talk about, you know, everybody wanting us to own more housing, in a sense, the, the drive from government to get us to own is understandable, given that we come really low down in, in the European stakes. We're number 28 in the list of European countries. So I think in Romania, uh, something like 93, 95% of people own their own home. And in the UK, it's more like 65%. So you can see why the government, successive governments have been interested in that, the idea of ownership, reducing the the debt of, of the burden, the obligation to the state in terms of provision. But on the other hand, I also think that the state, whether that takes the form of central government or local authorities, has a, a responsibility, a duty to provide and to facilitate high quality housing. I think the quality of our housing is one of those markers by which a decent civilization should be judged, is judged. And we've obviously seen that m most recently, you know, the ongoing uh, cladding scandal and the fact that so many people suddenly found themselves in buildings that, that literally weren't safe to live in. Yeah, I mean, and for heaven's sakes, um, I, I, I've been following a project in, uh, in Graven Hill. We made a series about it two years ago, uh, a place at Bicester in Oxfordshire where uh, 2,000 self-built and custom-built homes are going up. Some of them are going to be built by... Uh, building groups, people coming from the social housing list and working with their social housing provider to, to put up to put up homes. So it's a very in, in, it has plans, if you like, to be a very inclusive project. Um, and the quality of what gets built there is fantastic. Um, you know, often passive house standards, super high performance, some great architecture scattered through there as well. We're making two more series about where that project is going. The other side of that town in Bicester, I heard of a building, uh, a brand new uh, uh, house, where the end gable literally fell off the building because the thing was so badly constructed. So we, we have, on the one hand, we have these great exemplars of high-quality construction and design in this country. And on the other, we have, you know, at the kind of budget end, if you like, stack them high, build them cheap. And we have real issues with the quality of the construction that we build. And that applies to to uh, housing estates as much as it does to uh, high-rise and to, you know, uh, lean to issues that, that, that you know, we, we saw so tragically at, at Grenfell and that we're still dealing with through the cladding scandal. Do you think when the government is you know, making another push uh, in the Queen's speech to uh, promise uh, to build more homes, that actually there's an opportunity here that there are lots more people who now, you know, think they're not going to be commuting into big cities, that maybe they could, you know, live further out. You know, their entire lives for the last 12 months have been bound up in their home and maybe they want more of a say in it. That actually a shift towards more self-build and individual building. Um, there's an opportunity there. Yeah, and I think you, you can see self-build and custom-build and the idea of expression, if you like, uh, um, uh, in, a, in the wider sense of actually placing faith in a community. So if you're... If you're self-building, you're using local 
local trades, local people investing in the local economy. Uh, and I've always been really hot on that. I think I think that um, I, I think when people build in, in out of the way places, you know, rather than it, it them being kind of seen as as townies coming to kind of, you know, uh, bourgeois up an area, I, I think I see it as actually a, um, an investment in place, and and often it actually can has can have quite a regenerative effect. So, um, and, and one thing I'm looking forward to after lockdown now is 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 actually a yeah recalibrating of people's time so that all that time spent on the train in the week they might actually be spending at home and when you're at home then Kevin you need the you need a local post office you need a local news agent to be selling you stamps and paper for your printer and you know you in, in other words I think when we are all a bit more community folks when we're based where we live we tend to be a little bit more interactive and probably contribute more to where we live and I, I'm looking forward to that. That's really interesting about how it might foster community relations. And just finally, in terms of, if I came to you, you've been an expert in these matters, uh, how would you go about building your own house? Because obviously some of the people who uh, appear on Grand Designs have, you know, rather grand designs and they cost an awful lot of money. But how much does it cost to build, a, you know, a nice, reasonable size sort of family home c- compared to buying, a, buying one from a, a big old developer? On the basis of watching Grand Designs, you would think, wouldn't you, that it's £3,000 a square metre to build a you know, high-quality self-built home. And that, you know, until you're out of the ground, you don't know how, how much you're spending. And uh, heaven knows, you know, what other perils you face on the journey. And instead, you know, the television programmes that we make, which tell these epic stories, are, of course, great pieces of storytelling. They're narratives, you know, and... and, and um, when I visit the projects at Graven Hill at Vista, what I see there are affordable homes produced for between fifteen hundred and two thousand pounds a square meter, which is you know really good value uh, for really super well built homes that go up extremely quickly because they're factory built, and yet where the homeowner has all kinds of choice over design, layout, and finish, and taps, and so on, and 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 gets a, a building as a result which is far cheaper to run, much greener, better built and which costs less than the average home on the market. And it's, it, this is leveled at me repeatedly when I ask people how, you know, whether they're getting good value out of custom build uh, and self-build. And nearly all of them tell me that it, 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 to buy the equivalent thing on the market would be much more expensive. All right, I'm sold. I'll give it a go. Uh, that was Kevin McLeod there from Grand Designs uh, talking us through the politics of housing and how he thinks that we could, we, the, the way to get people to uh, own their own homes is to get us all to build them ourselves in places where we're then going to live rather than having second homes. So that was a really interesting point, that if we all start living in the places uh, and, wor- uh, and working from home, then you end up supporting your local shop and post office. And all that. that was really interesting. Uh, right, up next, we're going to stick with housing. We're going to speak to Dame Margaret Beckett, former Labour housing minister, and uh, Lindsay Judge from the Resolution Foundation, who's done some research into the connection between home ownership and how you vote. We'll do that next on time. Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Yes, every government in in the history of time has promised to build more homes, and they always end up falling short. That's the general. That's the general rule. Well, one person who knows all about that, uh, Dame Margaret Beckett, uh, a Labour housing minister under Gordon Brown, joins me now. Uh, good morning, Margaret. Good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us. We've also got uh, Lindsay Judge from the uh, think tank, the Resolution Foundation. Morning, Lindsay. Morning. 
Uh, now, Margaret, I remember when you, you were housing minister under Gordon Brown, that there was a big row about whether a government planned to build what was then 240,000 homes a year was a target or an ambition. And this was like one of the big debates of the time. Uh, in the end, of course, the last year of Labour, Labour in government, uh, you managed 125,000 completed homes in England. Uh, you know, and actually, since then, the coalition and Conservative governments haven't even come close to 240, never mind 300,000. Why is it so difficult for... Because you know, there seems to be sort of political consensus on building more homes. Housing ministers and government say we want X number more homes and they never quite manage it. What, 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 what is so difficult when you're sitting there trying to pull these levers in Whitehall? I think part of the problem is that nobody's really identified um, properly. What I mean, some of it is that there are um, the planning permissions granted and then developers just sit on them and don't, don't build them. I mean, there's something like nearly half, I think of the, the planning permissions that are presently extant have, have been around for quite a while and just nothing is being built. Um, there's a, the government says it's all down to the um, planning law, but that doesn't appear to, to be the problem. Um, and so, you know, if you, you don't identify the, the right answer, then you don't get the right solution. And I think part of the problem is... I don't think there's really been a pattern of consistent investment in building. I mean, when we first came to power in 1997, an enormous investment was made, but it was made initially, most of it, in bringing up the existing stock, particularly of social and council housing, to a decent standard because half of it was falling down. And so the first few years were spent on saving properties that already existed to a large extent and that was a pity because that was a diversion of funds and I think there's tended to be you know no consistent pattern of proper investment over a period of time so for example we one of the things we did just before we lost power was to say that um, all homes ought to be built to zero carbon standards by 2016 the first thing the Tory government did when they came in was to abolish it and yeah, and, that, and, and I suppose because it's, it's it's it takes time, and you know, it can take a matter of years from a uh, piece of land being identified, bought, planning permission granted, first bricks being laid, and then someone moving in. And politics moves much more quickly than that. What about the fact that we've had? I, mean, I think I made it seventeen housing ministers in the last twenty years. Yeah, that doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you you were there for what? About just over a year, almost a year. Um, uh, I can't quite October remember. October 2008 not... to June 2009. And I suppose there's a limit to what you can get when you're trying to steer exactly. this tanker. Exactly. There's a limit to what you can get done during that time. We were, and, and don't forget, that was in the middle of the financial crisis. Uh, and, and a large part of our effort then was going into working with the building societies and the mortgage companies to stop the scale of repossessions that we'd seen in the previous um, a recession under the Conservatives and to make sure <clears throat> that people were given, you know, um, extended mortgages and all this kind of thing. So to save people in the homes that they were already trying to build. So quite a lot of that time was devoted to other bits of, of dealing with housing rather than a concentration on the building programme. Although we were beginning a major building programme, um, but then, of course, we lost power. Okay, let's bring in uh, Lindsay Judge now from the uh, Resolution Foundation. And, and you, um, as the think tank, have done quite a lot of uh, research into this, haven't you? In, in particular, the connection, this isn't just a sort of abstract thing, but the connection between 
the levels of home ownership and what's been happening, particularly in some of those red wall seats. Talk, talk us through what you found. Well, I mean, homeowners generally are, are, are more likely to be older, of course, and and um, I mean, it's particularly true, um, as the Prime Minister has pointed out, that young people today are struggling much more than their parents or their grandparents did to get on the housing ladder. So that's, that's a real problem. So there's definitely a, an age bias there. Um, I mean, it, I, I think it's, it's arguable that the homeownership link and the red wall voting patterns is a, is a bit of a red herring. It, it's true that there are areas that have higher homeownership, but you would expect that because there are also areas that have lower house prices. So those are the kind of places where people do find it easier to um, to enter the sort of homeownership club. Um, but there are also areas where which are quite static. So there are areas where lots of young people don't move away and lots of young people don't move into them. So they're quite, quite sort of... Um, kind of stodgy areas if you like um, in, in terms of their demographics and again that, that sort of fits with this pattern that they're, where people are settled and that they're more likely to be homeowners because of that too. And does that resonate in the sort of you know aspiration you know successful political parties are the ones who manage to capture this sense of aspiration and uh, being able to uh, buy your own home or the promise of more homes so you can stay in the place where you were sort of born and bred seems to be that seems to be a message which the Conservatives are currently landing uh, better, uh, more strongly than the Labour Party. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, if you look at um, things like something called the British Social Attitude Survey, which sort of captures our kind of like generic kind of views on the world, um, the home ownership is consistently a high aspiration. It's and, and that's partly, of course, because the op the other um, op option, private renting, is not a very good option. Um, so there is a bit of a kind of relativity there, but there is something very kind of intrinsic about. Um, painting your front door the colour that you want it to be and um, the party that captures that and is able to sort of be, be seen to be the one that's up, you know, going to deliver on that I think has, has got a real a real head start. In fact that was exactly the clip we heard from Boris Johnson earlier on at the, the, the virtual Tory conference last year he was talking about being able to put up a picture uh, and, and paint your own uh, front door so that really does seem to be resonating. Uh, Margaret Beckett what can the, the, the current Labour Party do to try and capture a bit of that that mood and attitude, the, the sort of aspiration to resonate with some of these people that clearly Boris Johnson at the moment is doing a better job of connecting with? Well, <clears throat> Boris Johnson in general is absolutely terrific at sounding optimistic and pro promising exactly what people want to hear. And of course, because he hasn't been the Prime Minister all that long, uh, he hasn't had chance to deliver on all of those promises. And it will be interesting to see what the record is as opposed to the promise. There isn't any doubt he's saying what people want to hear. One of the things that we're doing, wherever we do have the opportunity, say in local government, despite all the pressures that they face, despite the cuts in funding and so on, right across the country, Labour councils are doing their best to provide extra housing. And one of the ones I would pick out particularly because of what I was saying a little while ago about um, zero carbon housing is Norwich Council, where they've built um, to a, such a high standard, they've got an architectural award, uh, 93 zero carbon homes. The point about that is not that it's just for good for the environment, for climate change, um, but also, it means those homes are going to be much less expensive to run and to maintain over the whole lifetime that they exist. So this is very much an area, and, and, and of course it's a classic area of, of green economic development where there's lots of jobs, good quality jobs made, created. So this is the kind of thing where we're do it, that we're doing wherever we have the opportunity to do it, but also in the meantime, talking, I mean, as Lindsay said, Unfortunately, people who are not yet in a position to own their own homes, and you know that's 
the number of renters has private renters has risen uh, over the time that uh, since the Conservatives were elected in 2010. The number of uh, own, homeowners, particularly under 40s, as the Prime Minister said, has fallen quite dramatically. They've had a lot of schemes. I think one of the reasons people think it's optimistic and they're going to deliver, they've had a lot of steep schemes that sound really interesting and really, you know, good idea, but they don't deliver. I mean, their starter homes scheme, I, I don't think a single property has been built. And I, that, yeah, and I suppose that speaks to the the, on, yeah, the problem that all, all governments face. The press, I think, you know, the press releases are much more easy to produce than, than homes. Just finally, um, uh, Margaret Becker, you talked about how Boris Johnson is, you know, a good communicator. He says what people want to hear. Mm. Do you think Keir Starmer has got the same uh, ability? Is he currently saying what people want to hear or does he need to up his game a bit? I think Keir has undoubtedly the ability to say what people want to hear and has been doing so, drowned out mostly by COVID uh, and, you know, by all the other things that are happening. I mean, over the last year, it's a miracle that he's got even his name across and got himself recognised, never mind, got acceptance for policies. But also, of course, that if there's a, a severe difficulty that Keir uh, labours under that will never trouble Boris Johnson is Keir won't promise what he can't deliver. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. 